So as, as we, uh, a couple weeks ago, studied Hebrews 11, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Verse 2, For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. Verse 3, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And then tonight we're going to take a look at our first hall of faith By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it being dead still speaks. We can leave that verse up there if you don't mind, Sam. And just to refresh ourselves, um, I gave you the illustration of the man dying of thirst in the desert. He comes upon um, a dilapidated structure in the desert. He sees a well, and on the well is a sign. The sign says, um, I have taken a jar of water and I've buried it under the white rock. And you, uh, what you need to do, and the well works, it's fine, but you have to prime the pump. Take half the water and, and wet the mechanisms and then take the other half of the water and pour it in, prime the pump. Once you've taken your fill of the drink, uh, re, uh, fill the, the jar again, put it under the white rock and put the sign back to, to its, its rightful place. And, you know, if you're dying of thirst, the first inclination is to drink the water and say, forget any other person coming along, I'm going to save myself. Faith is this idea that we believe in the testimony. And and imagine how how much easier it would be if you had on that piece of paper, everyone who had seen it to work had put their name on it. I can testify that this works and sign so-and-so. And I can testify this works, sign so-and-so. And the more names on that, that sheet that you're reading, the easier it'll be for you to trust to do the exact same thing. And, and you're preparing for pilgrims that are coming your way later that they too would be able to satiate themselves and protect anyone else coming from behind. And that's the idea of history. It's a redemption of man, but we have a road to walk by folks who have laid it out before us by faith. And so God's not asking a blind faith. We have a testimony in this hall of faith of all of those who have drank in this living water and prepared the way for coming pilgrims to say, this is a source of living water. You can trust it and you can, you can trust your life to it. And that's the illustration that we had to pre- begin our study through the hall of faith. So it brings us to our very first character in the hall of faith. We're going to go through a number of them, but tonight we're going to take a look at Abel. And so would you open up to Genesis chapter three, and we're going to take a look at Abel tonight, Genesis chapter three. And while you're turning, I am going to pray. Lord, we ask your blessing tonight on the study of your word as we come to understand this faith that you long for us to apprehend and apply to our lives. And so, God, we thank you for this hall of faith that testifies. And, Lord, that we have a hope beyond the grave, and especially in this season where we're having to just cling to faith and to trust you. Lord, it's a great joy to know that you are a God who is faithful. And so tonight, Lord, by this this testimony of Abel, that we too would see in his life that which we can trust. And I pray, Lord, that you administered every heart present in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's take a look at who this guy is. Um, Abel's got a brother, and it's going to be an interesting deal because Cain and Abel are twins. They're the most identical twins on the uh, in the history of the world. Uh, they are creepy identical, and I'll explain that in a moment. But let's pick up in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3. So it's the fall of man. Eve has been deceived by the serpent, and now God is placing judgment. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And then he says in verse 15, which we call the Proto-Evangelicum. The Proto-Evangelicum is the very first presentation of the gospel. In the scriptures, evangelical means good news, that there is hope for mankind even in the fall. Even as sin entered the world, there is hope for mankind. It's found in verse 15. He says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and, you, and he shall rule over you. I don't have time to explain that, but don't freak out about it. It's got a really good understanding. Um, and if you want more information that stumbles you, talk to me afterwards. I don't have time to go into it. Verse 17, Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. 
In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam, listen to this, and Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Got that out of verse 15, that she was going to bring forth from her womb uh, the one who would crush the serpent, crush his head. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin. Everyone say tunics of skin. And clothed them. What were they clothed in previously? Well, nothing. Clothed in. What did they try to clothe themselves in before the tunics of skin? Fig leaves. You ever seen those? They look very uncomfortable. Interestingly shaped, too. I won't go into detail on that if you've ever seen one. But uh, they tried to clothe themselves in fig leaves, and God gave them tunics of skin. How do you get skin from an animal? You've got to kill it. They don't part with that easily, do they? You have to kill it. And so here we have, in a sense, the very first blood sacrifice. Verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And so he drove out the man. He drove out the man and he placed a cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which he turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I'll explain that momentarily. Look at chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord, or I have acquired a man, the Lord. She's thinking that Cain is this proto-evangelicum. She's thinking that this is, this is the one who's going to save mankind. And don't all moms think that about their firstborn son. And by about the time of two, we realize this kid is not the savior of the world. Just thought I'd throw that out there. <clears throat> then she bore again, and this time his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep. Interesting, sheep. Uh, what did man eat at this time? Vegetarians, right. They didn't eat meat. So he's, he's got a commodity that's kind of worthless with the exception of maybe sheep's milk, which, well, I don't know about that. Um, and and uh, they didn't, until after the flood, they were vegetarians. Now, check this out. But Cain was a tiller of the ground, verse 3, and in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected, everyone say respected. Everyone respected. Respect me and say respected. I'm kidding. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's bloods, that's supposed to be plural in the Hebrew. The voice of your brother's bloods cries out to me from the ground. And so we see this picture of the very first murder in the scriptures. And the murder came out of anger and jealousy. And isn't that what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? It's, it's the, thou shalt not commit murder. But Jesus said, but I say to you, anyone who's angry with his brother. And here you see the heart of the law uh, uh, applied in, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount. So I want to take a look at this guy, Cain, because this is the very first act of faith, the very first act of faith. And to understand how significant it is, we're going to contrast Abel and Cain together, and it, and it will be a blessing to you. <clears throat> Let me go through a couple of things, especially in chapter 3, real quickly. Again, verse 15, the Proto-Evangelicum, God says that he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And then the scripture says in verse 20 that Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So from her womb would come the savior of the world, right? From her womb would come the savior of the world. And in this, um, God says in verse 21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And then he drove them out of the garden of Eden um, and, and then it says, he placed a cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, east of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So here you had Adam and Eve. How was Adam made, formed, I guess? 
from the dust of the earth, and the Lord blew his ruach, his spirit, into Adam, and he created man. And by the way, when we die, and as we see in this passage of Scripture, that uh, you will return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And that's why you see at funerals, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. This this comes from Genesis chapter 3, that we're created, our body, physical body, is from the basic elements that you find in common soil. But in us is the Ruach, the Spirit of God blown into us. It creates man. So we're a trichotomy, body, soul, and spirit, a three-part being. Now, in this... Uh, they, they were given a tree. The, the, there was a tree of life, and then there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, you can eat of any tree you desire. He had him name all the animals, but of this tree you won't eat because eating of it, dying, you will surely die. It's current and progressive. Don't touch it. And really what it was, it was an exit sign or an exit door from God's presence to say, I don't want to do things your way. I want to do them my way. I don't want to do things your way, God. I want to do things my way. And that's love. Love is a choice, and God gave man a choice. You can abide with me or you can choose not to abide with me. And really, it's not a ring that keeps me married to Michelle. It's not words that I said before a minister, although I publicly vowed that. What keeps me uh, married to my wife is my love for her and her to me. It's, it's out of a willingness, a yieldedness to one another. And, and that's what God wants in a relationship with mankind, that we want to be with him. Now, interestingly enough, uh, Satan was right when he said, eating of this tree, you'll know good and evil. And isn't that what's happened? We know good and we know evil. And it's awful. We've come to know evil. We don't know how to resolve evil. We have no power over evil. The Lord does, but we don't. We've seen what it does to man. We've seen sin permeate the world. We've seen death permeate the world. We've seen destruction permeate the world. We've seen disease, and and it goes on and on, and how it has cursed mankind. And as a result, we watch as pollution, and we watch as, as wars and terrorist attacks, and all kinds of things have infiltrated the earth. Prior to the fall of man, uh, the earth was amazing. And, and you see this, that Adam walked with God in the cool of the garden. Walking with God means that God is an unapproachable light. I personally believe that God created Adam, and when he created him, he was, in a sense, this, this light being. Because when it said that he was naked and unaware of his nakedness, he had no idea what had happened to his previous body of this, this radiant light, and all of a sudden he's clothed, clothed in flesh, flesh that is, is, is temporary. And it's a, it's a temporary dwelling to encompass his soul. And this is what it is. It's a shell. And, and we, we, you know, I, I was with Sarah when she died, and, and she was different when she died than when she was alive. The spirit departed. And this shell began to, and, and the mother, who was Chinese, wanted to open the casket. It's a Chinese desire, but the body hadn't been embalmed, and it was difficult. We couldn't open it. And she was distraught and overwhelmed by it. But you wouldn't have wanted to do that. And this is the shell of the human body. And this is what, what takes place. And so Adam, walking with God, could, could be in his presence because God, in a sense, is an unapproachable light. But there was nothing to separate Adam from, from God, the Father. And he walked with him in the Ruach, the cool of the garden, the spirit of the Lord was present. And you can imagine what, what Eden was like. Uh, they, they, they found, even after the fall in the, Delu, the, 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 Delu, the Deluvian era, uh, they, they've got 50-foot ferns that, that are, are, you know, fossilized. You can imagine these creatures. The, the, they, they say the canopy of oxygen was so heavy, and you, you talk about, uh, you know, oxygen chambers, and things grow bigger in that, rela- in that respect. The, 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 the earth was completely different prior to the flood and prior to the fall. Fascinating, unbelievable, overwhelming, and they had this. Well, now they eat of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and now they know evil. And now they're, they, they lose this connection. They're, they're clothed in flesh. God speaks to them. They're hiding from the Lord. They're trying to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. And God looks at them and realizes, you've done what I said you weren't supposed to do, and you've chosen to walk away from my presence. I'm the author of life. You've chosen to take the exit door, and, and now you're gone. Now, if they were to eat of the tree of life, they would be sealed in their perdition. And in a sense, it, it would just be awful. It would be like damnation eternally sealed in their situation and what god did is he, he created mercy time between point a which is birth and point b which is death we've been put on this earth to be reconciled reconnected to god and so he gave adam and eve time time to reconcile time to be reconnected with the father but something had to be done to pay the penalty because the wages of sin is death eating of this tree dying you will surely die that's the penalty god is completely just and he's merciful He can forgive the sin, but somebody has to pay the consequence. Somebody has to pay the penalty. When I broke the window throwing the ball against the wall, 
I realized I'd broken my neighbor's window. I went and hid in the house. The neighbor came next door, knew it was me, knocked on the door. My dad answered, and he said, look, I can pay for the window, but I've, that window's been broken so many times. He's got to pay for it. He has to understand what he did. My dad, realizing that I couldn't pay for it, said, I will make sure that he's responsible for it, but I will pay the penalty for that. My, bo- my father paid a penalty I couldn't pay. And that's what God's done for us through Jesus Christ. He paid a price we could never pay. He paid the penalty for sin. He paid the penalty for, for walking out of God's presence so that we, we can be reconnected. Now, so that man wouldn't be sealed in his perdition, God drove them out of the Garden of Eden. And some of you go, wow, that's cruel. And it wasn't like he was beating man and he was capricious and angry and saying, get out of here. Uh, I, you know, Natasha will understand. But when Natasha was struggling... And she wasn't sure how to wrap her mind around the Lord. And, and, and I was talking about her today at the funeral and how much she touched my life and, and how God had blessed us and, and how Rosemary, uh, Sarah's mother-in-law, was instrumental. And it was a really special time. But my daughter, Natasha, went through a struggling period. And, and she didn't really want anything that we had. And she wasn't, she wasn't sure about the Lord and, and wasn't willing to give her life to the Lord wholly. And there were a lot of struggles. And she, she figured, I can do this on my own. And, and what she would engage in was contrary to what our house believed. And I looked at Natasha and I said, I cannot enable this lifestyle. I can't do this. You have to choose what you want to do. If you live here, this is, what, this is what we believe in. This is what we do. If you don't want this, you're welcome to leave. But I can't enable you to continue in sin. I can't enable to provide for you when you don't want what God wants for your life. And she wasn't angry. And I didn't drive her out of the house. We had a... a, a a conversation and I remember as we walked outside together she was leaving to go move down to Oxnard it began to rain and and as we got to the car and she got into her car packed with all of her things I said Natasha you only owe me one thing if you find anything better than Jesus out there you got to come tell me and doggone it if there isn't a person on this earth that gave it a good college try I don't think anyone did a better job than Natasha and she she worked it for over a year and realized I want to come home I want to come home and I said, home's been waiting for you. There's a warm bed and there's food. But the condition still exists that God is the Lord of our home. Are you sure you want this? You've been sowing to the flesh. And she said, Dad, I want a foundation. And willingly, she went on a, for a year of discipleship to, to ground herself in the Lord and, and saw this. I didn't drive her out of the house. She saw that this isn't a place I want to live under these rules. And so she exited our home, similar to what God did with Adam and Eve. This is what's required. And if you touch that tree, you're done. And so they exited. God put a flaming sword, which was the access point that if you want to worship me and you want to be reconciled to me, this is where you meet. And the reason why I say this is because as this picture is given and God gives tunics of skin, he reveals to Adam and Eve that blood must be shed for the remission of sin. You were covered by the blood of the lamb. These tunics were more than tunics. They were a representation that blood must be shed for the remission of sin. They understood blood sacrifice. They understood that an animal by faith had to be, its blood had to be shed so that the ultimate coming sacrifice of Christ, by faith they would believe that. You see, Old Testament saints look back to a point in time, which is the cross of Christ. Excuse me. Old Testament saints look forward to a point in time, which is the cross of Christ. We, New Testament saints, look back to that point in time they looked forward to it we look back to it but as the center theme of all of history the 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 redemption of man as jesus christ paid the penalty for all mankind's sin but you by faith believe that his blood was shed and your sins are covered washed as white as snow blood must be shed for the remission of sins these tunics that god clothed them in was a representation of a blood sacrifice for mankind adam and eve understood it adam was formed out of the dust of the earth how was eve formed by a rib. Did Adam have a mother and father? No. Did Eve have a mother and father? So Cain and Abel didn't have to worry, and the family didn't have to worry where they were going to celebrate Christmas. Which family? <laughs> it's kind of a cool family, right? And, and you want to talk about this, this idea of, of, of um, uh, a DNA, you know, and, and this idea of recessive traits and dominant traits and all. That, that, wasn't, that didn't even exist for Cain and Abel. They were as identical as identical could be. And, and you look at him and you say, well, you know, one kid takes after the traits of his mother and the other takes after the traits of his son. No, 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 there's no, there's no recessive and dominant genes. You got the exact same amount with each kid. 
They are the exact representation of one another. They both have souls. They both have a will. They both have this desire to either submit to God or reject him. And, and this is what God is trying to emphasize to mankind. There's God's way and there's man's way. And that's why you have Cain and Abel. This is a very key story. And that's why God wants you to know, by faith, Abel. By faith, Abel. And what's so significant about it is this is the two streams of all of the world's religions right here in this passage. This hall of faith, starting with Abel, is so significant because it's the two streams of every religion in the world. And we'll explain that momentarily. He places his flaming sword at the garden east of Eden, and this is where they would come. And the reason why we say this is now go to chapter 4 and watch this. Verse 1, Adam knew Eve, his wife. She conceived, bore Cain, says, I've acquired... uh, the Lord, a man, the Lord, thinking that this is the Savior of the world. This is Jesus Christ. And, and, and that's the, the sentence structure in the Hebrew, but it's not. And she comes to realize this quickly. And then the second verse, it says, and she bore again this time uh, his brother Abel. Now, Abel, Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, and really the way it's described in the Hebrew is at a certain time, and that certain time is exactly what Adam and Eve had instructed Cain and Abel all their lives, that at this time we go and we sacrifice. At this time we go and recognize that we are covered by the blood of the Lamb. These tunics represent God's blood that's going to be shed for the remission of man's sins. At this time you go and offer this. At this time you come and realize that a sacrifice must be given. And so with this sacrifice, at that exact time, probably going to the east of Eden, right at this gate where the angel is, this is where they go to lay their sacrifice at the altar. And what's fascinating is nobody eats meat in this culture. They're all vegetarians. And so watch what Abel does. He's a keeper of the sheep. Cain's a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, at that moment, where it's time to sacrifice, it came to pass, Cain brings an offering of fruit of the ground to the Lord, and Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. The firstborn of, of God is Jesus Christ. A very clear picture of the, of the, of, of, of the euangelion, the good news of God that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is a picture of it from the very dawn of time. And he brings the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. Now you can imagine Cain's sacrifice. It's probably beautiful. He probably laid out the wheat and he had the, the oranges sliced and he's got the mangoes laid out. And he's got, you know, everything just beautiful. And he lays this down right there at the cherubim and the flaming sword and he puts it before this altar at this time of sacrifice and he lays down his self-effort and he says here it is God look what I bring you and then you got Abel coming he's just bloodied and he's bringing big old fat slabs and he's dropping those down and he's got this animal that's all cut up and chopped up and there's blood everywhere and flies are just I don't know if flies existed then but I imagine they've been around a while and and and, and here you got these two pictures and they lay it down and as they lay this down it says in verse 5 God did not respect Cain and his offering. And the word respect means, in, in the Hebrew, it's a P, which means upon. And, and the idea is fire did not fall upon the sacrifice. Fire did not fall upon the sacrifice of Cain, but fire fell upon the sacrifice of Abel. It consumed the sacrifice. And, and you, you can see this throughout Scripture, that God is blessed by the sacrifice when he consumes it. You just look at Gideon. The, the, the sacrifice was consumed. Manoah, when he was the father of Samson, the sacrifice was consumed by fire. Uh, David in the threshing floor of Onan, the, the, the sacrifice was consumed by the Lord. On and on and on it goes. We see this picture of God receiving the sacrifice. Solomon, the fire consumed the sacrifice. Uh, as you look at Solomon's life, Mount Carmel with Elijah, when uh, the prophets of Baal were, were you know, crying out and cutting themselves and, and praying. And, and they knew that, that God would testify to his con- contentment by consuming this. And he's, they're calling on their God, small g, to consume this with fire. And nothing happens. And, and Elijah begins to mock them, saying, well, maybe he's in the bathroom. You know, pray harder. Cut yourself more. And finally, they give up, and they're mocked by Elijah. And Elijah says, bring 12 barrels of water. Fill it and cover it and soak it and make it so wet so that everyone here knows knows that when God consumes this, there will be no doubt about it. And he begins to pray and the fire falls upon the sacrifice, consumes the sacrifice and laps up the water and just absolutely consumes it and burns it. And bam, God's hand is on it. A pea, it came upon this fire, this all-consuming fire of God testified that this is a sacrifice that is acceptable in the sight of the Lord. 
And yet no fire fell upon Cain's labor, but fire fell upon Abel's sacrifice. And this is where we find ourselves in the passage because when the scripture says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts and through it being dead still speaks. You see, what Abel did is he said, God, with my hands, I can bring you nothing that you don't already have and doesn't already belong to you. What I bring to you is a testimony that I know that blood must be shed for the remission of sins. I testify by faith that the coming Messiah, the the proto-evangelicum that you promised my mother would come through the lineage of man and that there will be a sacrifice that will consume all the world's sins if we would but by faith take God at his word. You see, we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You can't earn God's salvation. You can only receive it. There's nothing you can do to get right with God. Jesus already did it. By faith, you received that. You see, from Cain and Abel come two streams of religion. Both were religious men. Both were religious men. One man came and said, look what I did. Another man came and said, look what Jesus is going to do. And in a sense, he's actually saying, look what Jesus has done, what what God has done. He has given us remission for our sins. And all the world's religions boil down to two, two things. The religion of do's, or in a sense, don'ts. Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang around with those who do. I have to do this. I have to, I have to genuflect. I have to crawl over broken glass. I have to keep this, and I have to do that, and I can't wear this, and i got to do, 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 do. And then there's the religion of God. It's not a religion of do. It's a religion of done. Jesus said on the cross three words. It is finished. More importantly, in the, in the Greek, it's one word, tetelestai. Tetelestai. He hadn't had any moisture, he hadn't had any fluid, and there he was on the cross, and he was dying of thirst. And they brought the sop on the sponge up to his mouth, and all he did was wet his lips so he could just say those words. And it was one of the last things he said, tetelestai. You've got to be able to move your tongue to say tetelestai. And it was swollen from dehydration. And they moistened his lips, they moistened his tongue, and he cried out, it is finished. The penalty's been paid. The sacrifice has been made. For all saints prior to this, I have kept my word. For those who are coming, just look at the ones who've signed the note on the, on the, on the pump in the desert. You can trust God. He's faithful. To tell us die, it is finished. And so here we come to a place in life where what are you going to do? Are you going to try to earn your salvation by trying to be better than somebody else and your, your moral ability and, and all of your works? And you're going to put that before God and say, look at the kingdoms I've amassed and look at the money I've raised and, 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 and look and look and look. And God says, I'm not consuming that. I'm not impressed with you. I'm the one who's been keeping your heart being. No, I'm a self-made man. God looks at you and says, what part of yourself did you make? I did this. No, you didn't. The only hope for mankind is to realize that anything I do that's lasting is done by the power of Jesus Christ. Christ in me, the hope of glory. I, Rob McCoy, have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. I have been laid down and sacrificed at the altar of God that he now lives in and through me to do, to will and to do of his good pleasure. We're here to do the will of God and we do that by yielding and sacrificing our lives. Or we put God aside, get in the car and drive down to Oxnard and do things our way. We move away from the blessing. And you know what happens to us? We look at those around that are following and honoring God with their lives, and we get embittered to them. We get upset with them. We feel as though what they have and what God has given them, we, we should be able to get it. I don't want to work. I don't want to surrender. I don't want to do these things. And so we now subsidize their life. We now enable their life. If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. And all of a sudden, mankind says, well, the only way to have equality is I take from someone who doesn't have and give it to, to, I take from someone who has and give it to somebody who doesn't have. And everybody will have the same. And this is the Tower of Babel where man tries to create this this mankind understanding of, of world religion. And the Lord says, it's by grace through faith you've been saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. When you honor God, you're going to be blessed. The first five commandments are a relationship with God. It's vertical. The second five commandments are a relationship with man, horizontal. 
If we're right here, we're going to be right here. And if we honor the Ten Commandments, we're going to be blessed. That's why all the Levitical laws have to deal with property. And all due process laws stated by Stephen Breyer, a justice of the Supreme Court who is no conservative, said that every due process law comes out of Christianity. And what happens? What happens when God accepts one sacrifice and denies another? What happens when mankind realizes that life apart from God is difficult? They become embittered, not only to God, but to his followers. That's why we've been reading in in the Sermon on the Mount, when we get past this picture of a Christian who walks with the Lord, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall see God. Right? We see all that. And this Christian who is now transformed by the power of God, laying down their life, empowered by the Lord, completely transformed, now walks into a world to testify of God by faith. As, as Abel's blood screams out, so does everyone who testifies of the Lord to a fallen world. And as they cry out, what happens? The same thing that happened with Cain and Abel. You see, with Cain and Abel, with, with Cain and Abel, the sacrifice was consumed and God was blessed by it and Abel was blessed. Cain was not. Cain, instead of repentance and wanting to change and saying, God, forgive me, I, 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 I got this wrong. And God said to him, interestingly enough, he said, God did not come upon Cain's offering and Cain was very angry, angry, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard this said, thou shalt not commit murder, but I say if you're angry with your brother, right? Murder is just a a, a downstream of anger. Anger is the source. Murder is the consequence. Murder is the result. And this anger towards God and towards man, vertical, horizontal, this anger manifests itself. His countenance falls. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? A better way to put that is, in a sense, he says, if you offer the proper sacrifice, I will receive it. He says, if you offer the proper sacrifice, I'll receive it. And yet, his countenance has fallen. He's very angry. God says, if you offer the proper sacrifice, I'll receive it. But if you don't, sin lies at your door and sin will consume you. You know, when... when, when Temptation unites with the will. It, con- it produces sin, conceives sin. And when sin is fully formed, it produces death. God came that we might have life and life more abundant. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's the author of lies. Jesus is the author of life. We walk away from God, we embrace death. We embrace him, we embrace life. That's why our founder said, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Liberty is of scarce little value without life. And that liberty comes not through happiness, but through virtue is what our founders describe. And so when they lay this out, he says, if you would offer the proper sacrifice, you'll do well. But if you don't, sin lies at your door to consume you. He's giving him a warning and his desire is for you. But you need to rule over this by the power of God. There's no temptation to seize you, but that which is common to man. When you're being tempted, God will give you a way out. We all struggle. But God, by his grace, will give us a way out. It'll be hard. We'll have to die to ourselves and live to Christ. We'll have to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. The cross means we die, Christ lives. We submit to his word, and we're consumed by his spirit, and God empowers us to overcome sin and death. But watch this, verse 8. Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And the word talk in Hebrew means that he he got his confidence, and he drew him in. So, hey, bro, how you doing? What are you doing today? You working with the sheep? Everything going cool? Hey, it's really good to see you. And, you know, I just wanted to say the other day when you offered that thing and the fire consumed, and I looked a little bitter. I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. Whack! And when he wouldn't look and he was tending the sheep, he just smacked him. Premeditated murder. He knew that he was going to kill him. He got him off guard, and he whacked him and killed him. Came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him, murdered him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? You know what he was asking for? The same thing he asked of Adam and Eve, his parents. Why don't you confess what you did? Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God's not interested in excuses. He's interested in repentance. Repentance begins with honesty. God, I blew it. Will you forgive me? Yes. And so he turns to Cain and he says, where's your brother? It's not like God didn't know where he was. It's the same thing when he said, Adam, where are you? It's not like God was going, where, where are you? I just, all of a sudden, I just got blind. It was Adam who was hiding. He says, Adam, where are you? Come on, confess to me you're trying to hide. It's like a little children, you know, when you play hide and seek when they're young and they close their eyes and they think they're hiding. 
And you just look at him, it's cute, but it's stupid. <laughs> and he turns to Cain and he says, where is Abel your brother? And instead of repenting and confessing the truth, he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? You can just hear it. In a, I don't know, stupid parents. Am I my brother's keeper? Isn't that how we are? When we're confronted with sin, we get embittered to our siblings. We get embittered to those we're supposed to be caring for. And when he says, am I, brother, am I my brother's keeper? What is the response to that? Yes, you are. You're to care for them. And yet, we blame them for our misery. We blame them for our misery. Every, every time you meet somebody like that and, and they fail, they have every excuse why somebody else is responsible for their failure, not themselves. No personal responsibility. It's always somebody else's fault. And this is exactly where Cain is. It's somebody else's fault. And it's exactly what, what Adam said to God. It's the woman you gave me. Eve said, well, it's a serpent. Everybody blames somebody, but nobody takes responsibility. And here he says, my, my brother's keeper, sick of you. Rules, rules, rules. I want to live on my own. The only reason why I can say that with such fervency is I remember saying it to my father. I guess I'm the only one in the room. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. He says, it's not like I don't know what you did. You shed blood. And the wages of sin is death. And I'm not going to go through everything that happened to Cain, but the reality is two divergent streams. One is man's religion and one is God's. And man's religion seeks to kill God's. Why is it that you can't... Why, why is it that when someone hits their thumb with a hammer at work, they say, Jesus Christ? Why don't they say Buddha? Why don't they say, oh, Muhammad? Why is it the Lord that's always indicted? Insurance companies, everything's covered except for acts of God. What are acts of God? Life, creating life? The sun rising? No, earthquakes, famine, pestilence. Acts of God. Why is it the Ten Commandments have to be removed? Why is it that, that, that Christianity must be silenced? Why is it that this is the issue? Why is it that there's religious bigotry? Because this is the two divergent worlds. Man's religion, God's religion. This cries out for mankind to realize you must be reconciled to God. And it's not by works. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's submission to God, recognizing that I have sinned, acknowledging personal responsibility and God's blood covers you in your honesty. Man saying, I don't need God. I can figure this out on my own. And you people need to shut up. And so where Cain murdered Abel, his blood cries out to all the world that as we see in, in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The world will always persecute. The Cain will always persecute the Abel. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. The Cains will persecute the Abels. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets, the first being Abel, who were before you. And here we have the hall of faith starting with Abel, and the Cains will always persecute and kill the Abels. And this is history. This is history. Jesus said in relation to Abel, he said in Luke chapter 11, Woe to you also, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness, and you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send the prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, because they're testifying of the blood of Abel, and the canes of the world will kill them. And Jesus said in verse 50 of Luke 11, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Abel is saying there's only one salvation for mankind. There's only one Savior. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It is his blood, the sinless Lamb of God, that was shed for man's sin from the foundation of the world. And if you don't receive that, 
you are not in right standing with God the Father because your sin isn't covered. And you can say, I don't need you. I don't want you. And for those who testify, I will kill them as Cain killed Abel. And this will be the struggle in all the world. Jesus went on to say, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in, you hindered. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something that he might say that they might accuse him and ultimately kill him because Cain kills Abel. You see, Satan doesn't want you to know that there's hope for mankind. You've been created in God's image. He wants you dead because he walked away from God's presence. He's going to do everything to suppress the truth. The Bible says you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. Mankind is to testify to the truth as Abel did. Abel put that sacrifice down. Cain killed him. And yet here we come to this place where God says that by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts. And through it being dead, he still speaks. Why? Because he's alive. He's alive because by faith he believed that Jesus Christ would die in his place for the remission of his sins and he has been saved because Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. No man comes to the Father but by him, but by him. I look at this and it's heavy to me because the reality is Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 5, you will be persecuted. And I look at the church and we're afraid to be persecuted. We don't want to testify the blood of Christ. We don't want to testify to the truth. We don't want to testify of these things because the canes of the world threaten us. They frighten us and they scare us and they intimidate us. But God says in 2 Timothy 1.7, I haven't given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. The author of Hebrews would write in chapter 12, he'd say, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by this many become defiled. It's by grace you've been saved. So now we've been saved by grace. We can be merciful to one another. But the world wants that silenced and that root of bitterness that these people are blessed because they follow God. If we could just shut them up and silence them. In verse 18 of Hebrews 12, the author writes, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that uh, is burned with fire. He says in verse 20, And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the holy city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. You see, the blood of Abel cries out to a world that his sacrifice was received by God. And the world, and the the prince of this world, Satan, hates God and hates the truth and doesn't want anyone to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And the scripture says, how will they know unless someone tells them? And how do you, how do you tell somebody you testify? And Abel testified unto death. My life is not my own. We're immortal until God's done with us. We don't have to be afraid. I share this with you because as we close tonight, I want you to consider a couple of things. One is Cain and Abel, exactly alike. Exactly alike. They didn't have two sets of grandparents. They didn't have recessive and dominant traits. They were exactly the same. You can't blame them. You can't blame Cain's issues on genetics. You can't blame Abel's issues on genetics. We want to blame our environment. We want to blame anything but ourselves. We want someone else to be responsible for our failure. And Abel came to the Lord and said, God, save me. Have mercy on me. Cain said, I can handle this. I can do this apart from God. And what happens is the world becomes embittered to the child of God. And that's history. 
mankind wanting to be set free in personal responsibility and abundance before God, recognizing the Lord. And yet we want to blame our environment. People say that the United States of America is blessed because of the fact that we were isolated from enemies and we had great natural resources and on and on and on, but they they don't recognize that we were blessed by God. The Mayflower Compact was for the glory of God and the propagation of the Christian gospel. A nation founded on preaching the Ulangelian, the good news, the Proto-Evangelicum, preaching the gospel. The nation was founded on that. It doesn't mean everything we've done as Christian, but they came for the glory of God. The Northwest Ordinance, you couldn't get federal funding for education unless you taught, taught the Bible. Read it yourself. I was just reading this book about that, I was, that was a gift to me. And you look at Thomas Jefferson, you look at John Adams, both of them died on the Jubilee, the Uval, the, 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 the 50th year of the celebration of independence in the United States of America. On July 4th, 1776, the nation was conceived. And then 50 years later, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson died on the exact same day on the jubilee of the 50th anniversary of the United States of America. What are the odds? The first five presidents of the United States of America, two of them died on the same day, July 4th, the the birthday and the 50th anniversary. The odds of that are astronomical. And then you add James Monroe. He died five years later on July 4th as the fifth president of the United States. It was spoken of John Adams when he died. The windows opened up and, and, and light shone in. You can read the, the, and it's not made up. And you, you read John Quincy Adams and his reference to his father and, and Thomas Jefferson as well. You look at the second inaugural address where it was a completely cloudy day. It had been raining the entire time. Abraham Lincoln comes out to speak. The, the, the heavens open and the sun shines down on him. Was, secular newspapers wrote of it. And you read this second inaugural address, and it's so profound. Scriptures are inundated throughout it. And yet we dismiss America, the, the nation that has created the greatest wealth, the, the, the more patents, more symphonies than any other nation on the face of the earth. And you dismiss it. And the reason why I struggle with this is because you look at two, exactly, two people that are exactly the same. Same language, same peninsula in the world, same everything. One is North Korea, one is South Korea. North Korea rejected God. They've killed 3.5 million of their own people. They have the 113th GDP in the face of the earth. South Korea gave their people freedom and embraced the Lord. They have the 11th greatest GDP and nobody's been murdered in that sense. Not by the government. Three and a half million people. In the north, they eat grass and try to stay alive. In the south, they flourish. One recognizes God, one has removed God. I share all this because I want to close with this thought. With the Canaan and Abel exactly alike, there's two divergent streams. One is man's way and God, one is God's way. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Sin is a reproach to any people. Right? What do we do as a nation? And if you step forward to testify of the blood of Abel, if you step forward to testify of Christ, you will be persecuted. The Cains will always try to kill the Abels. And this little experiment in a nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Recognizing God. Recognizing accountability to God. And the purpose of government is the protection of man for the glory of God. They try to crush this little nation. The greatest power on the face of the earth that had just defeated the second greatest power on the face of the earth goes to crush this little startup. And God shows them favor. Here they're in deliberation trying to figure out the constitutional republic and they've come to odds with each other and they don't know what to do. They don't know how to give the smaller states representation, the larger states representation. They don't know how to keep it so that everybody has this opportunity to pursue God and have individual liberty and and responsibility before the Lord. And so as the constitutional convention is melting down, finally they call them back in at at the bequest of of, of George Washington and the only person to have his signature on all three of our founding documents the Paris Peace Treaty uh, the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution was Benjamin Franklin and, and in his late 80s he, he stands up gout ridden and he stands up and he begins to call on this assembly for three days of fasting and prayer and they fast and they pray and they reconvene and they come up with one of the most remarkable governments that the world has ever seen a bicameral legislature 
population of the states would be given their representation. That's where we have the electoral college. And each state would be given two senators so they'd have equal representation. Fascinating. Everybody dismisses that and decries it. And we've forgotten our history. We've forgotten all these things. And this nation is blessed. The Bible's being taught. And up until the 1930s, the number one textbook in America was the New England Primer. And everything in the New England Primer had to do with the Lord. Everybody would memorize these speeches of our founders. Not today. You don't know anything about them. And the one thing I get on the campaign trail endlessly is separation of church and state. I laugh at that. As though that's somehow, and, and their justification for the separation of church and state is the Salem witch trials. I'm so nauseated by that. Salem witch trials. I got a letter from somebody I ran against and they were inquiring of me. It comes to my attention that there are many in the community who believe I have attacked you personally by virtue of a letter I wrote. And, and this person goes on to say, I believe that you said you considered, uh, no, let me skip that. I'll come down to the part that's, oh, here it is. I believe the establishment clause of the Bill of Rights means separation of church and state. That was the position of our founders, and I believe it is true today as it was then. I understand you are strongly opposed to abortion. In fact, I have a friend who attended a meeting where you spoke, and he was expecting a talk on local government, but he said you spoke mainly about the evil of abortion. That is your right, but I hope you make it clear, and you probably do, that that is your personal opinion. But the whole idea of the church dictating policy to the state is a dangerous road to start down in the case of Muslim countries today, we can see the abuses that can cause that in our own Salem witch trials were a tragic example. I welcome your comments on this communication. My comment, interestingly enough, is I, I said, I admit I tire of the endless reference I seem to engage regarding the, regarding the Salem witch trials. I inspired by your fervent faithful concern and care. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I reacted when I should have responded, still though I have never had any angst towards you, yet to the contrary, I'm inspired. And then I said, I've attached an article with footnotes that will share with you some insights that are often lost in the Salem witch trial concern. I am sure it will at least help you understand where I'm coming from. I also wonder why we dismiss the history of secularist governments that have been responsible for billions of deaths, Stalin, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, etc., yet we are quick to fire off a supposed Christian atrocity that was responsible for 20, 27 deaths to justify secularism of government. I would welcome your reference study that you cited regarding the Salem witch trials so we can compare our notes. And I sent him my notes. I'll conclude with this. I have nine minutes. Be patient. An accurate presentation of history depends on the telling uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly about any event, person, or period. But negativists stress the bad and the ugly while routinely ignoring the good. They can identify every blemish that has appeared on the face of the country over the past four centuries, but not what has made America the envy of almost every people in the world. Every people, that is, except many modern Americans who can now recite more of what's wrong with America than what is right. For example, every public school textbook I have seen teaches students about the infamous American witch trials in which 27 individuals died. This is certainly appropriate, but these trials should be put into context. I've never seen a contemporary history book that informs students that witch trials were also occurring across the world at the same time. 500,000 were put to death in Europe, including 30,000 in England, 75,000 in France, 100,000 in Germany. Why do modern texts point out the 27 deaths in America but ignore the 500,000 elsewhere? Historical negativism. Students should also know that the American trials lasted only 18 months, while the European trials lasted for over 10 years. And the American trials were brought to a close when Christian leaders such as Reverend John Wise, the Reverend Increase Mather, and Thomas Brattle confronted civil leaders that biblical rules of evidence and due process were not being followed in the courts, thus convincing officials to end those trials. Furthermore, students should learn that the Puritans established some of the freest societies governed by the rule of law that the world has ever seen, including early elective forms of government in America. They also originated America's practice of written constitutions and constructed the first Bill of Rights to protect individual liberties. Moreover, they encouraged widespread education. Literacy rates in New England were among the highest on the globe and founded what became two of the greatest universities in the world, Harvard and Yale. 
Like all humans, they were far from perfect, but there was much to be celebrated in their accomplishments. School children deserved to learn more about the Puritans than just the Salem witch trials. In short, ministers were intimately involved in every aspect of introducing, defining, and securing America's civil and religious liberties. Of course, today, many of them in the media, entertainment, and educational fields work relentlessly to show how dangerous and alleged un-American it is to have ministers involved in public affairs or civil arena. One way that secular apologists attempt to prove this false thesis is by invoking the 1691 to 1692 Salem witch trials, claiming that those type of atrocities result when religious folks in general and clergy in particular are allowed to influence civil affairs. Their message is simple. See what happens when you let Christians and ministers get close to civil government. You get these types of civil atrocities. However, even the regrettable incident, clearly an ugly blemish in American history, actually proves exactly the opposite of what critics claim. The historical fact is that the Massachusetts witch trials were actually ended by Christian leaders, as I said before, John Wise, Reverend Increase Mather, and Thomas Brattle, who challenged the civil trials and invoked biblical teachings to show the biblical roles of evidence, which were not being met in the trials. These ministers thus convinced civil leaders and the governor to end the trials. Consequently, the trials were stopped by Governor Phipps in October 1692, and five years later, the Massachusetts court publicly repented and set apart a special day of fasting and prayer that prayers might be offered asking for forgiveness for the late tragedy raised among us by Satan. While the 12 jurors published a declaration of sorrow for accepting insufficient evidence against the accused, and Judge Sewell rose in his pew in the South, uh, in the South Church and made public confession of his sense of guilt, Furthermore, the American trials lasted only four months, but the European trials lasted years. And the American witch trials, a total of 27 were put to death. We went through this whole thing, uh, but I'll, I'll read this. Um, it was ministers who were influential in moving the government and the culture in a wholesome direction. And because of the positive influence of ministers in the civil arena, America was light years ahead of the rest of the world in its civil behavior. But compartmentalists not only ignore this chapter of American history, but even completely mischaracterize it in their effort to relegate religion and religious leaders to the smallest and most inconsequential role possible. Christian ministers indisputably provided courageous leadership through the revolution, but they had also been largely responsible for laying its intellectual foundation long before. In fact, Clinton Rossiter in his award-winning book, Seed Time of the Revolution, identified six individuals who most directly contributed to the rise of political liberty in America. And of the six, only two were civil leaders, Benjamin Franklin and Richard Bland. The other four were ministers of the gospel, the Reverend Thomas Hooker, Roger Williams, Matthew Mayhew, or excuse me, Jonathan Mayhew and John Wise. Even foreign visitors who come to study what made America so unique, such as the famous Frenchman Alexis de Tocqueville, who visited America in 1831, always discovered that America's liberties were inseparable from her faith. As de Tocqueville acknowledged, the Americans combined the notions of Christianity and of liberty so intimately in their minds that it is impossible to make them conceive the one without the other. Christianity provided the basis for America's civil and religious liberties, and the clergy were the faithful expositors of these principles. But what possible intellectual contributions could ministers have made? Consider Reverend John Wise, I've got four minutes, as one example. And as early as 1687, he was already teaching that taxation without representation is tyranny, that the consent of the governed was the foundation of government, that all men were created equal. Significantly, a century later, with the storm cloud of the revolution looming on the horizon in 1772, leading patriots and the famous Sons of Liberty, they reprinted two of Wise's works in order to renew America's understanding of what commitment to the biblical core principles of governance that the distinguished American government, Samuel Adams also sought to ensure that the biblical foundation of America, American philosophy of government were known and understood. In a famous 1772 work distributed across the colonies, Adams urged Americans to study the scriptures in order to understand the basis of the forthcoming struggle to preserve their God-given rights. The rights of the colonists as Christians may be best understood by reading and carefully studying the institutes of the great lawgiver and head of the Christian church, which are to be found clearly written and promulgated in the New Testament. That was Samuel Adams. The first printing of Reverend Wise's works issued by the Patriots in 1772 sold so rapidly that a second print was quickly issued. Significantly, many of the specific points made by Reverend Wise in that work subsequently appeared four years later in the direct language of the Declaration of Independence. Historian Benjamin Morris noted in 1864, some of the most glittering sentences in the immortal Declaration of Independence are almost literal quotations from his, this 1772 reprinted essay of John Wise. It was used as a political textbook in the great struggle for freedom. When 
And when President Calvin Coolidge delivered a 1926 speech in Philadelphia on the 150th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, he similarly acknowledged the thoughts in the Declaration can be very largely traced back to what John Wise was writing in uh, 1710. He said, every man must be acknowledged equal to every man. Again, the end of all good government is to cultivate humanity and to promote the happiness of all and the good every man in all his rights, his life, liberty, estate, honor, and so forth. And still again, democracy is Christ's government in church and state. Here was a doctrine of equality, popular sovereignty, and the substance of the theory of inalienable rights clearly asserted by Wise. That's Calvin Coolidge. It was Christian ministers such as John Wise and scores like him who through their writings and many sermons such as the election sermons and thousands of other sermons on the principles of government laid the intellectual basis for the American independence. In fact, history affirms there is not a right asserted in the Declaration of Independence which was, has not been discussed by the New England clergy before 1763. Christian clergy had been the leaders in setting forth America's unique political theory, then defending it even in military combat, but they were also leaders in securing that political theory legislative halls, uh, theory legislative halls during the revolution. My point is this. Cain always wants to kill Abel. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and life more abundant. I've come to set the captives free. Following Christ gives you liberty. Following Cain brings bitterness and death to those who would seek God. Choose this day whom you'll serve. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. The idea is, sin is a reproach to any people, but blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. There's no apathy. Faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Cain wanted to kill him, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, and through it being dead, he still speaks. His blood still cries out. And the blood is this, that Christ came to set men free. We are bound by the law of sin and death. We've been set free by the life, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, as Romans says. This isn't a game. This reflects the two streams of history, Cain and Abel. And this is faith. And faith changes the world. God's people by faith are not afraid of the Canes and they make a world that sets people free. Amen.